Good morning. We're uh, in a study, for those of you who are new here this morning, we are in a, a continuing study of the book of Acts, and we are in chapter 13 this morning. We have come a long, long way, but we're really just beginning in a sense this morning. Um, <clears throat> So we're going to start this morning with uh, reading a portion of the scripture uh, in just a moment. Uh, let me just bring you up to date for those of you particularly who have not been here. We have come today to a milestone in the Christian church. The gospel is about to go out to the Gentile world with a very determined effort. And it is an exciting, um, great day for the church. As the um, church in Antioch uh, lays hands on a few, a couple of brothers and sends them forth out into the mission field, and honestly, what happens in the passage this morning has affected every one of us sitting in this room today. The events that take place in this passage, the result from this uh, event, uh, have, have affected you and have affected me. We have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior because of this first effort to the Gentiles here in chapter 13. Now, for the first three years after the ascension of the Lord Jesus, the church grew primarily in the city of Jerusalem, and that's pretty much where it stayed. Had it stayed there, it would have died there. The gospel would not have gone out to the world. But that was not the Lord's plan. It was not the Lord's purpose. The Lord's purpose and plan was for the whole world to hear the gospel first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. For the next 14 years, the gospel went out not only from Jerusalem, but to Judea and Samaria, and there were some people who were scattered throughout the rest of the world, but it really didn't go out with any concerted effort into the rest of the world. There were isolated individuals, no doubt, but no concerted effort to reach the Gentiles. But now, in this chapter... The Lord is about to forever change the direction of the church. And as I said, as a result of his clear direction, you and I have heard the gospel and we are part of his church. Wonderful news. The gospel, I was thinking about it this morning and on the drive here as well, that what a wonderful message it is. It is so simple. It is so easy to understand, so easy to comprehend that even a child can hear it, believe it, and be saved. Even a child. And this gospel message is the message that was proclaimed in all the world. It is the power of God, Paul says, unto salvation. And God can take a simple, stammering, stumbling servant who simply preaches the gospel and he has God's dynamite, the gospel, in his mouth. And as he preaches it, people are saved. It's a wonderful gospel. It's a wonderful message that God has given us. God could have made it so difficult for us to get to know him. He could have made it so difficult for us to get to heaven. But he has made it so easy because of his son. Well, let's review how the gospel went out. The year here in uh, chapter 13 is approximately 48 A.D. 17 or 18 years have passed since the church began. And uh, in chapters 13 and 14, we have before us what is commonly called the uh, Paul's first missionary journey. The distance that he travels in this first journey is about 1,400 miles, both by sea and by land. The journey is a result of God, the Holy Spirit, moving in the hearts of church leaders to pray, to fast, and to send forth laborers into the field. And that's what we have here. So let's take a look. We'll start actually in chapter 12, just the last verse. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, 
Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. We're going to stop there for just a minute. Now, as you remember, one of the purposes of going through the book of Acts is to learn how to study the Bible. And so we gave uh, a few weeks ago some of the key ingredients to good Bible study. And, and one of the key ingredients to good Bible study is to ask a lot of questions. And so we're going to ask some questions this morning as we go through this passage, and I want you to see if you can find the answers. First of all, I'll start with the children because they're a little more intelligent than some of us older people. All right. There are some leaders here in the church at Antioch. Who are they? Yes. Barnabas is one. Okay, we've got one. Simeon? Is that a child who said that? <laughs> child of God, thank you. <laughs> All right, Simeon, who else? Paul, very good, Paul. That's three. Right there in front of you. Hope you got your Bibles open. Yes. John Mark. John Mark, actually, he, was, um, he wasn't one of the leaders in the church, but, but he's going to come up. We're going to talk about him in just a minute. He's one that's mentioned here. Yeah. Not Mark. No, he just said that, but he wasn't one. Okay, two others. Uh, hands. Lucius, right, and Manan. Okay, so the Holy Spirit of God chose two of the five men to go out together on the first missionary journey. I believe that this is actually a good biblical precedent Um, when it comes to sending out missionaries. That it is probably better in the overall picture to send not just one, but to send out two. Better to send out more than one at one time to uh, a a given place. Jesus sent out his disciples two by two. Good reason for it. The Bible says two are better than one. The Bible talks about when one stumbles, the other can pick him up. Threefold cord, he says, is not easily broken. So maybe three is even better. But it's better, I believe, to say there's safety and balance, I believe, in having two or more working side by side on the mission field. A lot of times people go out to the mission field as individuals. They're individualists. And uh, God calls people that way sometimes. But quite often they run into difficulties, discouragements, times of um, questioning, and I think by having someone alongside, I think that a lot of the rough edges are knocked off a person. I believe that's why the Lord has given a a plurality of elders for the same reason, that we tend to have strengths and weaknesses that counteract each other. So the Holy Spirit chose two of the five men to go out. All right, another question. What is the difference between prophets and teachers? Because it says there are prophets and teachers here. And are there prophets today? Why or why not? Well, let's just answer the questions. Prophets. A prophet is one who received a new message from the Holy Spirit to give to others in the church. Often the message had to do with direction in the church or future events in the church. Quite often a prophet um, was used in that way. Teachers, on the other hand, explained revelation that had already been given and so as prophets perhaps wrote even parts of the scripture or 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 wrote about future events the teachers would then take the scripture that had already been given and explain that revelation to the church are there prophets today in the truest sense of the word the answer simply is no there are no prophets today in that sense of the word why not because we have the completed Word of God. We have it here. We have a great need for teachers today. And if the Lord has laid it on your heart to teach, do the work of the ministry that God has called you to. All right, next question. How did they know who to send to bring the gospel to the rest of the world? Well, God gave these prophets His instruction through the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit of God who directed these men uh, to lay hands on these two men and send them out to the mission field. What's the significance of laying on of hands? We've talked about this in the past. We've done it here, actually, not only when we have sent missionaries out, 
but also when we, uh, just a few weeks ago, when we recognized deacons in the assembly here, we, as elders, laid hands on them. It is an identification uh, with these men or with these people. And in this case here, they laid hands, the prophets and teachers laid hands on Barnabas and, and Paul, or Saul in the case, as he's named here still at this point, as ones who would represent them in the work of, in this missionary work. And when we recognize men or women this way and we send them forth to a task, we are really saying, we couldn't go, but we're sending this one out representing us. And what he does or what she does is exactly what we would do in, in their shoes. They're really like ambassadors uh, for, the, for the, um, the work. It's setting them apart for the work and recognizing what work they do is what we would do if we were in their shoes. All right, and I think in a sense, <laughs> there's a great responsibility on those sending to be sure that the ones that they're sending out are indeed um, qualified to do the work that they're, they're sent to do. All right, who sent out Barnabas and Saul? I'll ask the children, see if they can get it. Who sent out Barnabas and Saul? Anybody? That's good. Yeah, it was the Holy Spirit of God. It was the Holy Spirit of God working through human instruments um, in this case. It's great to see this. Let's take a look at the passage again. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. You know, it's great. We've t- we talked about this uh, either last week or the week before, that when God saves a person... He has a work for that person. We are not saved by works, but we are saved unto good works. God has saved us for a purpose, and he has a purpose and a plan for every single believer's life. Do you know what that plan is for your life? Has God revealed to you what his plan for your life is, and are you doing it? Sometimes we are told what to do, and we know full well what to do. Jonah was a case in point. The Lord very specifically told him, go to Nineveh. And he says, thank you very much, but I'm going to take my ticket and go the other way. I don't want to go to Nineveh. But that was his life work. That's what God called him to do. And he rejected it. And he did not have any success in life. In fact, his life really fell apart. You know, he was kind of down in the dumps, in the stomach of a great fish, until he came to his senses and he repented. And the Lord had the fish spit him out on the out on the shore. And once again, the Lord said to him the same thing he had said at the beginning, go to Nineveh. That was his life work. What has God called you to do? What has God called you to be? It isn't for this world. I know that. It's to glorify him in whatever you do. What is it that he has called you to do? And are you doing it? For the work, it says, to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now here's where we, you know, I I like good value for your money. And for those of you who purchase Bibles with maps in them, this is when you get to use them. All right? Let's turn over to the the passage, yeah. (laughs) The map that shows, probably it'll say something like Paul's missionary journeys. And what you want to find is the colored, if it's colored, the uh, colored arrows that take you on the first missionary journey. And uh, let's just walk through the whole journey, and then we're going to go through it in a little more detail as we go here. So as you look at your map, they start off in Antioch in Syria. And so that, if you have a map that looks something like this, sorry I don't have overheads this morning for this, it's up in this corner right above, the, kind of like the north end of, uh, of Israel there, all right? So they're in Antioch, Syria today. Then they, let me go back over here. They sail across, or they they move down, I should say, to the city of Seleucia. It's just a little bit southwest of Antioch. It's a port city. From there, they get on board a boat, and they go over to the island of Cyprus. They land in uh, Salamis, or Salamis, depending on how you want to say it, but Salamis is how I would say it. They move down through the country to Paphos. From 
Paphos, they go to Perga. So they sail on ship to Perga up in the area known as Pamphylia. And then they go, this is a little confusing if you don't know there are two of them, they go to Antioch again. But this is a different Antioch. This is Antioch in uh, what is modern-day Turkey today. Then they travel to Iconium. It's sort of south-southeast of uh, Antioch. Then to uh, Lystra. And then they go to Derbe. And then, they, and then they backtrack. They go back and follow the path they came from, and they go back to uh, uh, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, and Pisidia, Perga, and Pamphylia. And then they sail um, from there back to uh, Antioch. Okay, so that's the journey. The distance, as I said earlier, is about 1,400 miles, most of it on foot. And so there's a lot of, uh, a lot of walking to do in this case here. Here's the thing. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of one of the things that the the Lord said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. This is now taking the gospel to the uttermost part of the earth, the beginning of it. As they entered into new territory, it's not surprising to find, as we have already seen in in, uh, previous chapters, that they come across persecution. The same is true here. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so the new missionaries come to Cyprus, and Satan throws opposition in their face right off the, right off the bat. And as they attempt to witness to a man who is the proconsul, they face opposition from a sorcerer. All right, so let's take a look at uh, this passage here in chapter 13, and we'll begin reading right through to uh, from chapter 13, verse 4, and on. So be, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Remember, they're going out to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that's their focus still at this point. They also had John as their assistant. So there you go. John was with them. He wasn't one of the leaders of the church. He was a young man, actually a relative, and he went out with them uh, as an assistant. Now, when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, that is the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So we read about this Elymas the sorcerer. Elymas the sorcerer. And we think, ugh, that's one of those guys from a pagan religion. You know, that died out 2,000 years ago. Nobody really believes that kind of stuff. These guys were dabbling in magic and things like that. I mean, who really believes that kind of stuff today? Nobody believes that sort of stuff anymore. Oh, really? The week we preach this is the week that the seventh volume of the Harry Potter series came out on shelves. Millions of copies sold within hours of the release of the book. To get the, uh, it hit the bookshelves last Friday with children drooling to get the latest indoctrination from author J.K. Rowling into the world of witchcraft, sorcery, spells, and the world of magic. The seventh and the last in the series flew off the shelves and into the homes of millions of readers who are opening themselves up to a seemingly harmless world of the occult and demonism. With over 325 million books in print so far of the first six volumes in 64 languages, 
She herself has become a billionaire by indoctrinating people into the world of the occult. Has this influenced your household? Is this something that your children are reading? Something that you're reading yourself? Or would you stand up like the Apostle Paul here in this passage? It says here very clearly, being filled with the Holy Spirit and thunder a rebuke against perverters of the straight ways of the Lord. Because that's what this is. It's exactly what it is. We need to be very cautious because Satan is very clever at taking something that is insidious and, and, and glossing it with a sugar coating and putting it into the hands of believers and unbelievers and introducing them to a world that God has told us to avoid. Listen to what the scripture says. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire or one who practices witchcraft or a soothsayer or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer one who conjures spells or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead for all who do these things are an abomination to the lord and because of these abominations the lord your god drives them out before you he's saying this to the children of israel as they're entering into the pagan land of israel at that time you shall be blameless before the lord your god for these nations which you dispossess listened to soothsayers and diviners but as for you the lord your god has not appointed such for you and listen believer i would say the same thing god has not appointed us to dabble in things like this people dabble christians dabble in things like the horoscope and the ouija board and and um uh, spiritism in different forms in the movies and all the rest god has told us to avoid it what's the danger what's the danger of this stuff it turns people from god that's what happens it turns them to uh, powers to satan's powers and it turns them away from the lord it's exactly what the sorcerer was trying to do to uh, sergius paulus turning him away from god say what persecution did they face in cyprus how did they handle it well this bar jesus his name was or elemis opposed them trying to turn listen it's very it's very clear what what his intention was this sorcerer knew that the message that these men preached was the truth and that he was full of fraud and he was determined not to let this message get through and paul saw very clearly the danger of um, allowing this man to continue on he was trying it says to turn the proconsul away from the faith this is exactly what um this uh, sorcery does today it is the same thing today as it was back here it is an attempt to turn people away from the lord that's what uh, he was doing here paul it says filled with the holy spirit listen you don't get a rebuke much stronger than this in the scripture full of deceit and fraud you son of the devil you enemy of righteousness you are a perverter of the straight ways of the lord and then the lord struck him with blindness there's not not much stronger rebuke in all the scripture than this and as a result of paul's rebuke of this man and this man being struck with blindness the proconsul saw that these men had the truth and he believed the gospel it is clear that not only did paul opposed this man but god himself did paul uh, god opposed the magician and he was judged by god and struck with blindness for a time i have no doubt that this physical blindness was a way for god uh, that god was reminding him that he was spiritually in darkness it was a sudden judgment and it would prevent him from practicing his evil arts anymore it was immediate in this condition he would have time to think about his life sometimes the lord does that in our lives he brings us to the end of ourself he brings us to stop in life we just go on and on and on in life and all of a sudden we hit a roadblock and sometimes that roadblock is the lord and i think it was here stop and listen to me stop and listen to my word and we are so caught up in the world system at times that we need to stop and listen to what God has to say to us. 
Hopefully, it would bring him to repentance. The sorcerer who had opposed God. Listen, if God could save Paul, one who was breathing out threats and murders against the church, he could certainly save this sorcerer. It is in the writings of the early church, I think it was in um, Origen's writings, that this man ultimately came to know the Lord. I can't verify that. It's not in the scripture, but that's what um, we read about. The aim of punishment, and this is clearly punishment here, but the aim of punishment is what? It is to bring about repentance. It is to bring about a right relationship with God. It is, in a Christian's case, it is to bring about fellowship again with God and with other believers. And although it is difficult to be the one disciplining for wrong behavior and words, it is out of love that we do so and for the ultimate good of the sinner and for the health of all the saints. Are you facing opposition as you preach the gospel? I know some of you are. Some of you have told me about it. And I've often responded with, good. And you go, what? (laughs) Good. If you've got some opposition in your life, good. The Lord has placed you in the right place. And just stand up for the truth of his word. Are you up against individuals who interfere with you sharing the gospel, the good news with family, or, or in the workplace, with friends? Listen, God is able to stop the mouth of lions and blind the eyes of Elemas. He is certainly able to bring to shame those who oppose you in preaching the gospel. The proconsul believed. He clearly saw that Elemas was an imposter, a fraud, a religious huckster, and that Paul and his companions were preaching the truth, and he believed the gospel. Wonderful, wonderful account of uh, salvation here. Well, next leg of the journey. They leave this island, and they now travel um, north. And uh, we want to read verse 13 for just a minute. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. So in this leg of the journey, there are only two left of this group, Paul and Barnabas. John Mark left to go back to his mommy. He went back home. It's a sad day, in a sense, when a believer who is called to a work chickens out. And I really believe that's what he did. I think he just flaked out. I think he just gave up. You ever been like that? Become discouraged? Become afraid? Become so challenged in your Christian walk that you say, I just can't go on like this. I, gotta, I, I want out. And back away. John was like that. And I believe that John Mark failed here in, in not going forward. And if the story ended here, it would be a really sad disappointment. Paul and Barnabas are going to have, are going to have words about this, but not today. It's coming up in the future here. I won't destroy the story by telling you the answer at this point. Okay. At this stop, the missionaries preached the gospel. And who did they preach the gospel to? Well, they preached the gospel to the Jews. But when they um, departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Now, what we want to do here is quickly go through this and outline the message that Paul is preaching. And I want you to understand that what he is doing, he is here for a purpose. What is that purpose? What is the purpose? Preach the gospel. So if his goal is to preach the gospel, you would hope to see the gospel in his message, right? Okay, we're going to see it. Let's take a look. That's his purpose. And he starts off by saying, um, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers. You go, what? Where's he going with this? But who's he talking to? Jews. And so he wants to talk on their terms and bring them to the point of understanding who it is who saves. How it is that they can come to enter into a right relationship with God. Isn't that the purpose of the gospel? To preach the gospel that people might understand how they might be saved? That's what he's going to do. So he starts off with who they are. 
and where they've come from. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Point number one, God chose our fathers, exalted them in Egypt. It was God who delivered them from Egypt. Okay, that's the first point I want to make in the gospel. It is God who brings about deliverance. Then, next part of his message. Now, for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. Point number two. For 40 years, Israel wandered in the wilderness. Why did they wander, by the way? Disobedience. They did not believe God. Simple as that. That's the point he's making here. Israel did not believe God. And yet, God was gracious to them, and he delivered them yet again. Seven nations were greater than them. He destroyed them all, and they entered into the promised land. God is a deliverer, even to those who um, had not believed. God, judge, God gave them judges next. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. Point number three. You have a period of 450 years in the, wilderness, in the uh, land of um, Israel where God delivers them again. That's the whole point of this judges. If you remember the story of the judges, Israel did what? They wandered from the Lord. They turned their back against the Lord. And then when they came to repentance... God sent them a deliverer, and he delivered them, and they destroyed their enemies. And then they went back into sin again. And when they came to repentance, and they turned back to the Lord, God sent a deliverer again, and he delivered them. And that went over and over and over again for 450 years until Samuel the prophet came. And then it says, um, and afterwards, they, and afterward they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Point number four, God gave them a king. But it wasn't the king that he wanted to rule over them. God was the one who was to rule over them. But they requested it. He, he uh, gave, gave them a king. And then it says he gave them another king. When he removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said... I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. Wonderful, wonderful message. And so he says, look, God gave us David, who was a man after God's own heart. From him, God promised the Messiah would come. And God has fulfilled. Now, he's talking to Jews who do not know this part of the story. They knew that God had promised uh, David someone to sit on his throne perpetually. They knew that. That was the promise they had. They knew that it would be through him. The Messiah would come. And now Paul is there, and for the first time, he is announcing to them who the Messiah is. It is Jesus. It is Jesus. He is the Savior. He goes on to say, After John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. So he goes back in history slightly here and says, Look, John came first. And he came to prepare the way of the Lord. And his message was the same as what had taken place during the period of time in the Judges, where God called on his people basically to repent, to turn to him. And John came with that purpose. He came to call Israel to repentance. Okay? That's the point of his, of his message here. But the, um, and then in verse 26. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? You think I'm the Messiah? That's the point of the question. Am I the one you've been waiting for? No, I am not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. Salvation is now being offered to you, Paul says. 
salvation does not come through John. Salvation comes through Jesus. And the message of salvation is now being presented to you. I love the story in the film, uh, Itao. Some of you have seen that movie where the missionaries go into the uh, tribe in Papua New Guinea and they begin to preach the gospel. And the first thing they talk about is how the gospel was preached and how, it went, uh, how the word of God went to Israel and how Israel rejected the word of God and how it went out to different parts of the world, how it went to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And here they are in this simple tribal village and they, and they say, and now... The Word of God is coming to you to believe. It is absolutely thrilling to see it. It's exactly what Paul is doing here, but centuries before. And he's saying the same thing. And that's exactly what I'm doing here to you today. The Gospel is being presented to you with a purpose that you might believe the Gospel and that you might be saved. Wonderful message. And so he says, salvation is being offered to you. He goes on to say in verse um, 27, uh, 20, uh, yeah, 27. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers. So the Jews back in Jerusalem and all of the rulers who, who are over them, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. Wow, what a statement. Paul is saying, look, back in Jerusalem, the Jews back there, they have heard the scripture, but they don't know Jesus. The rulers who are over the people, they're supposed to be the religious rulers of the people. They know, they have the word of God. They've read the prophets and they don't know Jesus. And yet God used them to fulfill the scripture in what way? By having Jesus crucified. And it was through them because of their opposition to Jesus Christ they actually fulfilled the scriptures that they did not even know. And so in verse, um, and though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Point number one in the gospel, Jesus Christ died for our sins. And when he fulfilled all that was written concerning him, <laughs> don't you love that? Do you understand what he's saying here? When he had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, what was written concerning Jesus Christ? That the Messiah would come to this earth, that he would die, and that he would suffer in our place. If you look back at the Old Testament scriptures, the prophets, the Psalms, that talk about the suffering Savior, they were all fulfilled in Jesus Christ, including his death on the cross, all fulfilled in him. He is the one and the only one. There are not, all religions do not lead to heaven. There is no other Savior apart from one, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only possible Savior there is, bar none. And so he preaches the gospel. He says here, they found no cause for death in him. They asked Pilate that he should be put to death. When they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him a tomb, in a tomb. Point number two in the gospel, he was buried. There's only one point left in the gospel, and that is that Jesus Christ rose again from the grave. Does Paul fulfill his message here? Let's take a look. But God raised him from the dead. <laughs> there it is. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And he was buried. And he rose again the third day for our justification. And as Paul is um, coming to the end here, he says, but listen, don't just take my word for it. There are many witnesses of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ who have seen him alive from the dead. And, his, and his, um, he's also saying here that his resurrection fulfills the scriptures he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from galilee to jerusalem who are his witnesses to the people not only was he seen but god has left them as witnesses on earth to tell the story of salvation to all who will believe and we declare to you glad tidings that promise which was made to the fathers 
God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm. These scriptures that we are about to read clearly point to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are three scriptures that he quotes from Psalm 2, verse 7, Isaiah 55, verse 3, and Psalm 16, 10. They clearly point to the resurrection. Paul, through his preaching, and I, through my preaching this morning to you, declare to you that the scripture has been fulfilled. God has sent a Savior. His name is Jesus. And he died for you, paying your full sins penalty on the cross. He was buried, and God raised him from the dead that you might be declared righteous in God's sight if you believe the gospel, just as he said he would. We preach to you the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, the world, although they may not even know it, the world is burdened by their sin today. I see so many unhappy people. I look, I look at people's faces all the time as I walk through the mall or I walk out on the street or as I drive by people, and they're just, people are so burdened today, burdened by life, burdened by sin, burdened by guilt. And the gospel message is such a glorious message. That's why it's called glad tidings. Do you remember what the angel said the, the night that Jesus was born? Behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy. <laughs> they couldn't have said it more expressively. Listen, God's message is a message of gladness and hope and joy and peace. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Your sins can be forgiven. The guilt can be wiped away. You can be free from the burden of your sin. Praise God. What a message this is. And we preach to you this morning the forgiveness of sins if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is clear. You cannot get to heaven trying to be good. You can't do it. It doesn't work that way. Trying your best. But believing the simple message of the gospel that Jesus died for your sins, was buried and rose again the third day, saves you and forgives you of all your sins. So, it's good news. It's great news. It's wonderful news. And I preach it to you this morning. If you're not sure this morning of your relationship with Jesus Christ, you're not sure of your relationship with God, you're not sure that your sins are forgiven, or you know for sure that your sins are not forgiven, I want to encourage you this morning to come and to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Submit to Him as your Lord. Have Him cleanse you of all unrighteousness, all of your sins, all of your guilt. Do it today. We preach to you Jesus, through whom you can have forgiveness of sins. And by whom you will be considered and treated as righteous in God's sight. You say, well, you don't know me, preacher. You don't know the sins that I've committed. No, I don't. But I know one who can forgive you all your sins. There isn't a sin you have committed that God can't forgive. God can forgive you all your sins. By receiving him as your Savior, the guilt of all of your sins... The burden of all of it will be wiped away. This is something that law-keeping cannot do. I want to ask you this morning, will you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, trusting Him for eternity? Take a look at what Paul says here as the fulfillment that he mentions in Psalm 2. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. He's talking here about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. That was David speaking in that psalm. And he goes on to say, listen, for David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, that is he died, was buried, with his fathers and saw corruption 
If you were to go and dig up David's grave, you'd find that his body is decayed. That's what he's saying. He's still dead. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. That is Jesus Christ. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you, um, just a moment, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Through him, you receive the forgiveness of sins. By him, you'll be considered and treated as righteous in God's sight. That's wonderful. When you believe the gospel, God not only wipes the slate clean, but he says of you who believe, you are righteous. Here is a holy God who cannot allow sin in his presence. Not a single lie. Not a single false thought. Not a single wrong deed. And yet this same God, because of what his son Jesus Christ has done, can declare you righteous in his sight, without fault, no sin attached cleansed, completely pure in his sight, righteous in his sight. What a wonderful salvation this is. And what do you do to earn it? Nothing. But you believe the gospel. Simple as that. Here is this message that has gone out. God has taken such pains to save your soul. He sent his son from heaven to Calvary's tree to save your soul. God has done everything that is necessary to make you right in his sight. And now all you have to do is believe. If I came to you this morning and I offered you a gift, Russ, would you take it? No strings attached, you take it. If I offered you a gift, would you take it? What would it be like if I offered you a gift and you said, I don't want that. Are you kidding? I don't want that. What a slap in the face, huh? It's exactly what people are doing when they reject the gospel. God has offered them a gift. The greatest gift ever. The gift of his son. And people turn their backs on him. And they walk away. And so there is a warning. And I want you to understand that when you preach the gospel to people, we are so, we, we so love the story, and it's a wonderful story. But don't forget the fact that there is a consequence to not believing the gospel. There is a penalty for not believing the gospel. And Paul brings it out here. He says, Beware, therefore, verse 40, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. In other words, if you reject this gospel message that is coming to you, you may not have another opportunity to hear the gospel. And beware, lest this comes upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though, no, though one were to declare it to you. The Bible has many warnings about, for those who reject the gospel. The Bible tells us that in flaming fire, God will take vengeance on those who do not know God and that do not believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Very serious warning. And so the message is a glorious message. It's a wonderful message that you can believe and be saved. But if you reject it, I have to tell you the warning. And that is that you're, you're sealing your own fate. You're sealing your own doom for eternity. A warning against rejecting the message. What was the response? Well, it's the same here as it is any time the gospel is preached. There are those who gladly believe. And there are those who simply say, another time. I'll deal with Jesus later. I have life to live. I've got other things on my plate. I'm a busy person, you know. I can take care of my eternity later. I'm a very important person, and I'll deal with God later. And some just flat out reject him, just outright. I don't want Jesus. I want nothing to do with him. What is your response to Jesus Christ this morning? If you don't know him, I urge you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today. If you're in the balance, get off the fence. Get off the fence. Believe the gospel. It's the best choice you'll ever make in life.
So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged. <laughs> you know, here the Jews leave and they go, okay, well, we've listened to these things. But the Jews heard, got wind of it. And they begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Wow, wouldn't that be great? The whole city. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Can you imagine that? Being so caught up in your own self-importance that you would reject the gospel message out of, out of jealousy because there were so many people that were coming to hear this message? Imagine the reason people are going to give. Well, Lord, I'm sorry, I didn't believe the gospel. It was because I was jealous that there were so many people listening to Paul and they weren't listening to me when I was preaching. What an excuse. People have all kinds of crazy reasons for not turning to Christ. I hope you don't have them. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, that is to the Jews. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Well, praise God. The Gentiles are, are, are going to hear the gospel, and we have heard the gospel because of it as well. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed and the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. I tell you, when you're in the center of God's will, expect persecution. Expect it. It's going to come. It has to come. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. When you're in the center of God's will, and even if you are facing opposition, there is a joy that comes with it, knowing that you're in God's will. Well, let me ask you again this morning. It's a wonderful message of salvation that God has given. A wonderful opportunity for you today to believe the gospel. And I would urge you, come. Come to him today. If you don't know the Lord, you'd like to be certain that you do know the Lord. Come and speak to me after the meeting today, won't you? Let's close in prayer and the meeting will be over because of the, uh, the time. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the simplicity of the gospel message that Jesus died in my place that Jesus died for me, that Jesus paid my sin's penalty in full and was buried and rose again from the grave the third day, just as the Scriptures proclaim. He is alive. Thank you that by believing this gospel message, we too can have our sins forgiven, our guilt washed away, and be placed in a right relationship with God for all eternity. Hallelujah. What a message it is. Lord, I pray that you would work in the hearts of all who hear this this morning, that they might believe in Jesus' name. Amen.